Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 80 for the week ending Monday, October 24th, 2016. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasugo, glad you could join me. This week's headlines include one of Kenya's biggest banks, the Kenya Commercial Bank, getting hacked, Netflix partnering with Nigerian internet provider Spectronet to set up a dedicated server in Lagos, and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange getting his internet access cut by the Ecuadorian government. Now that's all ahead, but first, once again in our sponsor segment, we'd like to remind you of all the convenient ways you can access the content we produce here at the African Tech Roundup, namely the weekly African Tech Roundup podcast, which of course is what you're listening to right now, the African Tech Conversation series, which features in-depth chats with leading figures from Africa's tech and innovation scene, and the Quick Tech Chat series, which features brief and some not-so-brief exchanges that we've had with tech pros currently working in the trenches of Africa's tech industry. You'll find all this content at africantechroundup.com as well as on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or any other good podcatcher out there when you search for African Tech Roundup or African Tech Conversations. Then of course do yourself a favor and sign up for our weekly newsletter to have all the latest podcasts sent straight to your inbox. And so now it's on to this week's news. First up, South Africa's government-owned fixed-line telco Telcom is no doubt trying to trend alongside the hashtag fees must fall and hashtag data must fall campaigns that have dominated South African headlines in recent months. I guess it's worth mentioning that the 30-day deadline that South African DJ Thibaut Touch and his posse threw down for mobile telcos to slash their data costs by at least half has come and gone. And we're all still waiting to see what they're going to do about it. In any case, Telcom does seem to have come up with a bright idea, which is to offer free data to university students for them to use while varsity campuses around the country remain inaccessible due to protest action. So provided you're a registered varsity student and have a prepaid or postpaid Telcom SIM, you can now access content on your varsity's website free of charge. The company is utilizing the Telcom reverse bill URL service and has waived charges to institutions until the end of the academic year, quote, showing their commitment to education in South Africa. Now, Telcom joins the ISP AfriHost in capitalizing on the topicality of data pricing as well as the demand for free tertiary education that's currently sweeping South Africa. Uh, They've approached all affected academic institutions to promote the offer to their students. And so with exam time coming up in the next week or so, not being able to access online learning resources is one less excuse students can use to claim that they couldn't prepare properly. Now, on the whole, given how this Fees Must Fall campaign seems far from over, I reckon this is a smart, if not slightly cheeky move from Telcom. We see you, fam. Now, as for the hashtag Data Must Fall campaign, if you're still backing that cause and have some important news to share about what you're going to do now that MTN, Vodacom and company have pretty much ignored your ultimatum, uh, give us a shout and let us know what you have planned. Email us via hello at africantechroundup.com. Now for some interesting news involving Uber, they've just announced a partnership with First Bank in Nigeria to make loans available to driver partners there. Uh, this follows the launch of similar schemes in South Africa and Kenya over the last year or so. They plan to enlist 90 drivers initially, but of course, if you're interested in accessing that facility, you need to have earned more than 2.4 million naira in the past six months, as well as uh, having maintained a rating of higher than 4.5. With that in place, a driver might then qualify for a loan of 2.5 million naira, or roughly uh, $7,930, to buy a second-hand vehicle at an interest rate of 20%. The loan would then be repayable over two years, uh, and uh, Uber is promising to grant drivers access to comprehensive insurance cover at favorable rates. 
Now, some of the casual research I've done on how well Uber's loan scheme is working in Johannesburg specifically suggests that drivers don't find the loan terms very attractive. Now, I've spoken to a number of drivers, many of whom uh, drive vehicles owned by other people. Many of them earn a flat commission based on what they make on trips, less fuel costs, but uh, others work under some sort of loose leasing arrangement where the deal is to deliver a predetermined cash amount to the car's owner every week while keeping the car fueled up and pocketing whatever else they make. So when I asked drivers whether or not they'd consider buying a car of their own on credit via West Bank, most of them reckon they wouldn't. Uh, I've been told that repayments are based on kilometers traveled regardless of whether the vehicle is earning money on a trip or not. I've even been told stories of drivers defaulting because they didn't realize how difficult it would be to keep up with, with payments, particularly in slow months. Now, I can't claim to know the ins and outs but I can see why a really successful Uber driver with a solid private lease arrangement uh, wouldn't want to be bound by a loan agreement with West Bank or First Bank in Nigeria's case. Uh, they'd have to deal with the pressure of making repayments. And why do that when you can basically make money unencumbered without the risk of ownership? Now, the drivers I spoke to seem to understand that owning their cars only delivers value if the arrangement they have with the car's owner sucks. And so let's be honest, it is what it is. This is a growth hack for Uber and not some gracious means of helping drivers achieve their ownership dreams. Uber has said that they've now reached 1 million rides in Nigeria and uh, they're aiming to grow their driver network uh, in that country from 2,000 drivers to 4,000 drivers by the end of 2016. So let's see if this loan scheme helps them to do just that. And then, of course, heads up to ride-hailing services like TaxiJet that operate in Francophone Africa. Y'all better brace yourselves because Uber says they'll be moving into a French-speaking country quite soon. I haven't said which one, though. And uh, meanwhile, Uber is initiating a welcome innovation in South Africa, which is setting up designated pickup and drop-off points at locations that have lots of different entrances. Think malls, think stadiums, uh, think schools, things like that. Uh, there's nothing worse than having your Uber spend 15 or 20 minutes going from entrance to entrance at your local mall or something, looking for you only to give up and cancel your trip hashtag first world problems now thank you uber we see you fam now staying with ride hailing news uh the middle eastern ride sharing service kareem is said to be aiming to train something like 10,000 drivers per month to build on growth in the 32 cities in 10 countries they now operate in North Africa and the Middle East. Now, in Egypt, the service is available in Cairo, Giza, and Alexandria, as well as in the North Coast during the summer season. And the folks at Kareem claim to, to have 25,000 drivers working on the platform in Egypt alone. That's pretty good going. The company claims to be growing at a rate of 30% month on month and seems intent on giving Uber a run for its money. The startup was launched in 2012 by uh, two former management consultants who partnered with a Saudi businessman uh, named Abdullah Elias, and um, they have recently announced a strategic partnership with Next Future Transportation to work on an electric driverless car project in the Middle East and North Africa. That's pretty much standard fare at this point. Pretty much every car maker and uh, ride-hailing service these days is working on a driverless car project. But, I mean, look, uh, I certainly wish them well in taking on Uber, uh, as well as all that Saudi Arabian money backing the company. Um, yeah, good luck to them indeed. Now for some big VOD news, and of course it doesn't get much bigger than Netflix, does it? On the continent, to be fair, uh, Showmax still has the biggest stash of content that you can uh, stream. But uh, nonetheless, Netflix bigger around the world. And so Netflix has made an announcement uh, that might signal the beginning of the end of Netflix and Buffer. If you're a subscriber of Netflix on the continent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Netflix is now partnered with Nigerian internet provider Spectronet to set up a dedicated server in Lagos to improve 
improve video streaming performance. Now, the server is set to hold the entire Netflix content library, no doubt the content library that is available to watch on the continent. To be sure, Netflix can't do much about the cost of data on the continent, but the server being hosted in Lagos does mean that data will travel much shorter distances and make for a much more seamless uh, viewing experience, perhaps to a limited extent, even a more cost-effective user experience. Now, according to research published in June by the Queen Mary University in London, there are currently only 10 Netflix servers uh, at internet exchange points in South Africa. Uh, But this new server in Lagos is said to be the first Netflix server hosted in partnership with an ISP. So listen, if you're a Netflix uh, subscriber on the continent, do let us know when you start to experience noticeable improvements in the streaming service you're getting, and then give us a shout on Twitter at African Roundup. Now, staying with news out of Nigeria, turns out MTN has paid over part of its fine for flouting SIM card registration procedures to the Nigerian government. But the Nigerian Communications Commission that actually penalized them has reportedly not received any part of it yet because the Attorney General of the Federation has not remitted the funds. Now, so far this year, MTN has paid roughly $254 million. According to reports, the money was paid into a recovery account opened by the AGF with the Central Bank of Nigeria and is meant to be transferred into the NCC's domiciliary account. Now, despite the NCC sending official written requests to the AGF asking for the transfer to be put through, nothing's happened yet apparently, and the AGF AGF has decided not to provide any reasons for the delay. Now, if you missed my chat with TechCabal.com's editor-in-chief, Bangkole Oluafemi, regarding the MTN versus NCC situation back in episode 78, go check it out uh, and you'll start to understand why I feel that this news is particularly fishy, especially given the tough economic times Nigeria is weathering at the moment. Hmm, let's leave it at that, shall we? And so, from news involving Africa's largest mobile telco to news involving one of its smaller ones, uh, C in South Africa. Now, according to C's website, they have over 20 million subscribers. Now, that's a number that tends to pop up quite frequently in the communication they put out. But according to a regulatory filing last week, it turns out they have far fewer subscribers than that. So you might recall us reporting some weeks ago that the JSE-listed firm Blue Label Telecoms is poised to buy a 45% stake in Celsius as part of the mobile operator's recapitalization plan. And so according to a circular sent to Blue Label shareholders last week, Celsius only has a total active subscriber base of 12.6 million people. Turns out 10.6 million of those are prepaid customers, half a million of them are contract customers, a million of those people are on something called hybrid tariff plans, while 700,000 are broadband users. Now, when the folks over at techcentral.com asked Celsi point blank what gives, the company said that the number listed in the circular represents what it calls A3 subscribers, or subscribers that have been active at least once in the past three months. Now, they say that figure is more directly comparable to the subscribers reported by other network operators. Which begs the question, why report any other way, Celsi? Y'all are spinning this thing, aren't you? Now, in trying to explain the 20 million figure, which Celsi says has actually grown to 25 million, they say that represents total subscribers. They say those are customers who have generated revenue over the last four months. Now, both Vodacom and Telcom reportedly define an active user as a person who's generated revenue within the last 90 days. And so really, all this serves to do, uh, in my mind, is validate the tough time mobile telcos are having at staying afloat in these data-driven times, desperately trying to tell a good story. Uh, no matter how you spin it, though, Celsi, there's no escaping the fact that you're struggling with the rest of them. And good luck to you. Let's keep it clear. Let's keep it honest. Let's keep it moving. To Kenya now, where easily one of the past week's biggest stories has to be how one of Kenya's biggest banks, the Kenya Commercial Bank, got hacked. Now, according to media reports, the bank suffered a massive data breach that saw data belonging to more than 500,000 customers surface online. Now, 
uh, it's, it's said that the leak includes names and phone numbers. And now last month, a Burundian programmer slash hacker who goes by at Iraq Chris promised that he would demonstrate just how vulnerable the KCB system was. Now, it seems the guy wasn't out to profiteer from hacking the bank, but rather just to alert them to the security vulnerabilities that they might have. He's even explained how he did it. He says the data was collected from what he calls an information leakage vulnerability. He said he found a flaw in the KCB app and gained access through a Python injection to sensitive data, including the technical details of the web application environment and the specific data of users. Now, people, and by people, I mean uh, the KCB and their clients, only started taking Chris seriously more recently uh, when they started receiving dodgy SMSs that were seemingly sent by the KCB offering ridiculously cheap loans. Now, the KCB has come out warning their customers of the fraudulent SMSs, and they claim that they're aware of the alleged data breach. They're calling it alleged, of course, because they say their client data is 100% safe uh, and protected by multiple layers of encryption, private keys, and unique authentication. Now, I'm not so sure whether to believe them or to believe reports that suggest that as soon as Chris discovered KCB's security vulnerabilities and reached out to KCB, they decided to ignore it. So um, it's worth mentioning, though, that the KCB is certainly incentivized to lie because under Kenya's proposed Data Protection Act of 2012, anyone collecting sensitive data from the public, uh, particularly commercial interests, must put in place appropriate technical and organizational measures to safeguard such data against the risk of loss, damage, uh, destruction, or unauthorized access to personal information. If KCB did indeed drop the ball here, they could be in serious legal trouble. And so here's what I want to know. Have any of you out there tested the vulnerability claims that at Iraq Chris has made on Twitter and via his blog, uh, wolfsec.blogspot.co.za? And uh, do you think the Kenya Commercial Bank is lying when they say their client data hasn't been compromised? Do let us know on Twitter at African Roundup or drop us an email via hello at africantechroundup.com. And of course, not to be outdone, Twitter, Spotify, Amazon, Reddit, Yelp, Netflix, and the New York Times suffered a massive distributed denial of service, aka DDoS attack last Friday. The sites either slowed down or got knocked out altogether. Now, the disturbing thing is they're not even sure who's responsible. What is a certainty at this point was that it was a coordinated attack on DIN, a major DNS host uh, that uh, says that they're continuing to investigate and mitigate the several attacks that were made. Here's what researchers at security intelligence firm Flashpoint have so far established about the attack. So a Mirai botnet has been observed attacking DIN, and two kinds of devices are said to have been used. Now, the first being a DVR running the software of a Chinese company previously identified as being a key target of the Mirai hackers. And then the other was a network-attached storage device with a username and password of root forward slash root. Now, alarmingly, it's also been suggested that a significant proportion of the DDoS attack traffic targeting DIN is being sourced from compromised IoT devices, in this case cameras that are participating in Mirai botnets. So brace yourselves, ladies and gentlemen, the future is here and it seems to be a scary place. Perhaps Mark Zuckerberg famously putting some tape over his laptop camera might have been onto something we all should be doing. And finally, we'll round things off with two more international stories, and we'll start with Ecuador withdrawing web access altogether. That is for one of its temporary residents, a certain WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange, who is currently hiding out in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Now, Assange is, of course, free to leave the Ecuadorian embassy whenever he wants, but he isn't quite ready to do that for obvious reasons. He's probably not ready to get extradited. So the Ecuadorian government has clearly explained that um, they're simply not prepared to provide Assange with a platform 
to uh, meddle with the U.S. election. They want to maintain their policy of, quote, non-interference. But they have said that Assange can continue to count on them providing him asylum. Uh, in a formal status report WikiLeaks uh, put out uh, this past week, they've gone to great lengths to declare that they've never published content from Ecuador, uh, but rather from various data centers in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, they've also said that Assange has never transmitted U.S. election-related documents from the embassy. Now, I'm not sure why I buy that, uh, especially when it's an open secret how Assange reviles Hillary Clinton. And while he maintains that he doesn't endorse anyone running for the U.S. presidency, he's come out saying that he's happy to speak at the Greens convention due to his appreciation of Dr. Jill Stein's position on whistleblowers as well as peace and war. So what I'm waiting to hear from Julian Assange slash WikiLeaks heck, it's all the same, isn't it? Um, well, I'm keen to hear what he wants to reveal about Google in terms of them potentially being a threat to net neutrality. Now that I'm keen to hear about. Now finally, for something we've been predicting on the show for over a year now, uh, what is that, you ask? Well, it's the inevitable massive consolidation between telcos and big media. Now, according to media reports, AT&T has reached a deal to acquire Time Warner for more than $80 billion. Now, this follows recent media speculation that a deal worth up to $85 billion could go down. The deal will see AT&T gain control of huge entertainment and news brands, including HBO, Warner Brothers Entertainment, and CNN. It's totally on trend in terms of what we're seeing around the world uh, with telcos and I ISPs trying to consolidate around huge media plays, you know, to best leverage their scale and make the most of those huge customer databases they have. Now, you might remember a conversation I had with Olivier Fortain, uh, who's the MD for Sub-Saharan Africa at BT. Uh, he indicated to me some months ago that he believes that telcos who don't make a significant attempt to participate in big media plays uh, might go extinct over the next decade. Now, on the continent, we've seen the NASPO's own Showmax cozy up with Telcom in South Africa, as well as with Safaricom in Kenya. When will we see the type of massive consolidation that rivals uh, the acquisition uh, we're reporting this week of Time Warner by AT&T? Could Vodacom, for example, buy Naspers or Safaricom Purchase Nation Media Group? I genuinely think something like that could happen if it's not already in the works in the background. Now, the implication of such consolidation on maintaining neutrality is, of course, worrying. But sadly, I reckon that in many respects that ship has sailed anyway. Now, give us a shout on Twitter if you don't agree with that. Perhaps I should uh, invite some folks onto the show and, and debate this uh, at some other time. In the meantime, though, one thing is for sure. Telcos, ISPs, and big media players are clearly determined not to become the next Yahoo or BlackBerry. And it's absolutely fascinating to see this go down. So those are the week's headlines. Once again, we'd like to remind you for all the convenient ways you can access the content we produce here at the African Tech Roundup. You can head straight to africantechroundup.com or find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and any other good podcatcher out there uh, when you search for African Tech Roundup or African Tech Conversations. Also, do yourself a favor and sign up for our weekly newsletter to have all the latest podcasts sent straight to your inbox. And do give us a shout on social. We love to hear from you on Twitter. We are at African Roundup. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. So I do look forward to having you join me on the show again next week, Monday on africantechroundup.com. But for now, I'm Andile Masugu. Until next time, do take care, Africa.